in an experiment. Yeah, we don't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, we bring you news of the oldest ever hashtag. Plus the hidden energy costs of all your data. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. About 300 kilometres east of Cape Town, on the coast of South Africa, is Blombos Cave. It's a pretty small cave, only some 55 square metres in area. But this tiny cave has hidden huge secrets about the ancient humans that visited it. Inside the cave, we have a perfect record of the activities that were carried out by those people during that time period from 70,000 to 100,000 years ago. This is archaeologist Christopher Henschelwood. Christopher's been excavating Blombos Cave since the 90s, peeling back the layers of the past. So it's like layers of a cake. As people came in, they did a whole lot of things and they left and the next people came in. It's extremely rare. Uh, You can really count the number of sites like that on the fingers on one hand. And from this rare site, Christopher has uncovered remarkable finds. Engravings on ochre dating to 75,000 years ago. Beads that would have been worn as jewellery. And then finally, in 2011, we published this toolkit from the 100,000-year levels, which was a real breakthrough, because here you had perfectly preserved two abalone shells filled with paint, ochre-rich paint, even with a little paintbrush still sitting on the edge of the shell. And all of a sudden, you had a whole slew of pieces of evidence that strongly pointed to... Homo sapiens, our ancestors in Africa, being behaved really modern long before they left Africa. This slew of evidence challenged ideas that Homo sapiens creativity had originated in Europe. Now, in Nature This Week, Christopher is publishing yet another example of the creativity of the ancient people who visited Blombos Cave. An ancient fragment of stone with a red pattern on it that looks strangely familiar to a millennial like myself. You've seen a hashtag. (laughs) You've seen three lines which are made in one direction uh, diagonally and then six lines made in the other direction diagonally. Hashtag or not, the red pattern is quite clear. But Sylvia Bello, an archaeologist who didn't work on this study, acknowledges that this find might not immediately jump out at the untrained eye. It might not look too exciting, possibly, for someone who's not an archaeologist, as it is a, a small flake. However, it has these very interesting lines, uh, and it seems completely different from other finds at, at the site. To Christopher, this find from Blombos Cave was tantalising. We were certainly excited when it was reported that the piece had been found, and it looked, you know, to our eyes as archaeologists, very convincing, but that was not... Good enough. So Christopher and his collaborators set out to test what exactly it was they'd found. The red cross hatching, it turned out, was ochre marked on the stone. But marked how? To find out, the team used a variety of approaches to try to recreate similar ochre marks. And we're using a small wooden uh, stick. We painted that mixture onto 
a silkweed flake that looked very similar to the one that we recovered from the, from the site. We then also uh, made crayons of various thicknesses and we then drew lines on the experimental pieces. It was absolutely clear at the end of the study that what we had was a drawing on a piece of ochre 73,000 years old. And this age is what makes this find so special. While there are other all-day examples of human creativity, from Homo sapiens and our relatives, these are typically carvings. But this is the oldest drawing, and by some margin. The next known Homo sapiens examples are in Europe and Asia from about 40,000 years ago. And although those cave paintings are more figurative, including hand stencils and depictions of animals, Blombos Cave's abstract hashtag predates them by some 30,000 years. If you're struggling to get your head around the scale of these time frames, well, rest assured, you're not the only one. We're talking here about 6,000 generations ago. Many people can't even imagine what 100,000 years could look like in terms of time, because if you look at the pyramids, they're just a couple of thousand years old, and that seems to be extremely old. And with its extreme age, this drawing adds to the wealth of expressions of human creativity that have emerged from Blombos Cave. We've never found a a, a drawing before, and that drawing was fourth or the fifth leg of the table because that put into place that those people were capable, in terms of their behaviour, to produce the whole suite of artistic behaviours. This artistry, though, is abstract. Unlike the figurative representations that appeared later, these hashed lines are more mysterious. We're inevitably limited in our understanding of both their intent and their significance. But Christopher and Sylvia point out that its abstract nature shouldn't suggest that it's without meaning. So we... We have to be careful because we, on the one hand, we absolutely know that we have not found any figurative drawings from before 40,000 years ago. Um, But that doesn't mean that these early abstract paintings and and, and drawings didn't carry meaning. Clearly they did. Even nowadays, we sometimes don't understand the reasoning behind an artist producing a piece of art. So why would we expect to know always having an answer to know what all this abstract sign means. The artwork itself may be abstract, but for Sylvia, discoveries like these help make our ancient Homo sapiens relatives just a little bit more tangible. Here we are looking at something that doesn't seem to be particularly useful for specific purpose of surviving, uh, for uh, hunting or their bare necessity. We always think of art as something quite modern, but this is actually very old. But the fact that they were taking time to do something that it doesn't seem to be immediately related to a necessity, um, I think is fascinating. It made them closer to us. That was Sylvia Bello, who's based at the Natural History Museum in London. You also heard from Christopher Henschelwood, who's based at the University of Bergen in Norway and the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. You can read Christopher's paper at nature.com, where you'll also find an editorial and a news piece on the study. Stay tuned for the news chat, where we'll be hearing about the researchers trying to get to grips with the health effects of wildfires. Right now, though, it's the research highlights, brought to you by Anna Nagel. 
A small species of hammerhead shark is rather undermining their bloodthirsty reputation by becoming flexitarians. Bonnethead sharks have been seen supplementing their meaty prey with seagrass from the underwater meadows where they live. But scientists didn't know if they actually digested the greens. Researchers fed a group of captive bonnetheads seagrass spiked with carbon-13. After a few weeks on the diet, they found high levels of carbon-13 in the shark's blood, which must have come from the seagrass that they'd eaten. Couple that with an enzyme found in the shark's gut that can break down cellulose, and scientists can now declare the bonnethead to be the first known omnivorous shark. Check out what's on the menu over at the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Flu season is looming and drug resistance is on the rise. But never fear, we might be close to adding a new weapon to our anti-flu arsenal. The new compound, baloxavir, works by inhibiting the flu virus's ability to replicate itself. In large-scale trials, patients' viral load drops steeply after just one day on the treatment, much more quickly than for those taking a standard antiviral medication. And although the patient's symptoms didn't improve any quicker, the researchers say that the compound could be a useful alternative for people who don't respond to other treatments. Read more in the New England Journal of Medicine. Pretty much everything we do in our lives has some impact on the planet and on climate change. Driving to work burns petrol, boiling a kettle uses electricity, eating beef adds methane to the atmosphere. But of course, it's not just individuals who have an impact. Large multinational companies also have their carbon footprints. While oil and transport companies may be among the obvious players, the very biggest companies these days don't trade in material goods, but in data. Companies like Facebook and Google, how are they impacting the environment? These companies, they don't look like um, environmental problems, right? They're not spewing black smoke or grinding greasy cogs or producing pollution. But they are using a lot of energy to make them work. This is reporter Nicola Jones, who's written a feature in This Week's Nature about the amount of energy used by these companies. In particular, the energy used by data centres. I gave her a call to find out what the problem is. So data centers are these huge buildings uh, the size of aircraft carriers and they need electricity to make them run. It's just stacks and stacks and stacks of tens of thousands of servers. So every time you're uh, uploading Facebook pictures or every time you're streaming a movie on Netflix, you're using up energy. And we are a very data-hungry society. We're using more and more and more data and all of that is using more and more energy. And, and does it really use that much energy? Because you know, when I think about the things I'm doing around my house with all my plastic wrapping from the supermarket or cooking with gas on the stove, I, I really don't think of, you know, browsing the internet as being something that's going to take up a lot of energy. No, exactly. Nobody really does. But so right now, uh, we use about 200 terawatt hours uh, for all the data centers on the planet. Um, and that is about 1% of the current electricity demand globally. So whether you think that's a lot or a little depends on your perspective. So you could say that that's more than the electricity consumption of some countries. On the other hand, it's half of the electricity that's used for things like transport. And is, is the problem here... Um, you know, increased energy use over the planet, which is basically comes back to climate change, where we're going to be getting a lot of that energy from fossil fuels, um, and thus our energy use is contributing to climate change. Yes. 
So the planet's electricity use is just kind of skyrocketing. So it would be great if we could be really efficient about how we use our electricity. And also we make our electricity from clean sources. So that would be great for the planet. But are the big companies um, who, who own all these servers actually invested in reducing their energy use? They are. Um, so reducing your energy use is not only great for the planet, it's good for your budget, right? So one thing that we've seen happen over the last uh, kind of decade or so is that Facebook, for example, in 2011, built its own data center. And these data centers, they make their own servers from scratch, specifically designed to do what they want to do, and they cut out all the bells and whistles so that they're as efficient as possible. And they also spend a lot of time thinking about things like how the building is run. So, for example, uh, computers need to be cooled. You probably know that from your own computer, your own laptop. There's a fan running to cool it. So data centers spend a lot of time and energy working out more efficient ways to cool their buildings. And at the core, uh, the efficiency of a data center depends on the efficiency of the actual computer chips that you're using. You know, our computer chips are shrinking and getting more efficient and better at doing what they're doing, but there are limits to that. Um, and eventually, we're going to have to shift to some kind of totally different kind of computing in order to get more efficiencies out of things, like maybe quantum computing. What do experts think we're going to see going forward with changing demand for energy and demand for data and and technological changes? It depends who you talk to, but some of the more kind of alarming predictions show that maybe we're going to be using 20% of global electricity demand by 2030 for all of our information communication technology industry. And there were some people who you had spoken to in the feature who were quite concerned about this possibility, and then others who were more sceptical of those predictions. I spoke to one of your sources, Jonathan Kumi, a researcher on data electricity use. This was his take. There are those who think that electricity demand of data centers has been growing and will continue to grow very rapidly. And from 2000 to 2005, we actually did see a doubling in the United States and in the world of electricity used by data centers. But the interesting historical fact is that since about the time of the global financial crisis, there's been almost no growth in electricity used by data centers. So even though we've had a very rapid increase in the use of computing, we've been able to improve efficiency so rapidly that we've kept data center electricity use roughly flat in the last eight or nine years. So we expect that the efficiencies that come from using cloud computing will offset the growth in the demand for the service and that that will continue for the next three to five years. That was Jonathan Kumi there. And so, Nicola, back to you. How optimistic are other researchers about this idea that, that we can keep improving efficiency and improving technology and keep the actual electricity use flat? People definitely have differing views on whether technology will step in to save us. Um, So historically, if you look at the last five years, yes, things like shuttering small data centers and moving their business over to the super efficient large data centers is really helping us to save a lot of energy. But that can't go on forever. Uh, So there are certain uh, efficiency gains that we're taking advantage of right now, which are probably going to run out within a decade or maybe two. And then who knows what will happen after that. And when I asked Jonathan about the next decade or two, he wasn't prepared to speculate beyond five years into the future. And actually, there is a lot of scepticism, isn't there, about long term predictions? 
Yes. Trying to forecast future data use is really hard because we don't know exactly what people are going to be using their computers for. Um, so, for example, if artificial intelligence becomes like a really common system that people use for a lot of things, that could really boost our computing power. There's also a point of view that if you make something more efficient, you just use it more. So, for example, in the old days, it was really clunky and hard to stream a movie on your computer. Now, it's so easy that we just use it more. So there's an argument that even if you make things more efficient, all you're going to do is increase usage to offset those efficiencies. So it's really hard to predict what's going to happen in the future. That was reporter Nicola Jones, and you also heard from Jonathan Kumi. Read more in Nicola's full feature at nature.com forward slash news. Time now for the news chat and Nature's Bureau Chief of the Americas has found her way across the Atlantic and into our London studios. Lauren Morello, welcome. Hi, Adam. Now, first story, we are turning back to the Americas. There have been huge wildfires engulfing California. Well, firstly, how how big are we talking with these fires? Wildfires in California have burned an area so large this year that it set a new annual record, um, and they've destroyed an area that's larger than London. So with these huge fires, researchers are trying to learn what what the health effects of the, the pollutants that are coming out from all this burning are. Now, now why is this something we, we don't already know? So this really surprised me when my reporter pitched this story, but it turns out that um, studies of the health effects of air pollution don't differentiate what the source of that air pollution is. They really only track the size of pollution particles in the air. And generally, most pollution comes from things like vehicle exhausts, whereas with a wildfire, you're burning trees, you're burning houses that can have stuff like asbestos and all kinds of plastic, and you're just burning crazy mix of things. And people just haven't studied this um, specifically. And now they're trying to. And now that they are trying to, what kind of things are they looking at to, to, to find out what the health effects might be? Well, so there are some laboratory studies going on looking at how smoke created by burning different things affects the body. It turns out that um, if you're burning, say, pine needles, that kind of smoke affects you differently than smoke created by burning plastics. It just affects different types of cells in your body. And then um, scientists are also setting up long-term health studies of people in areas where wildfires occur pretty regularly. And they're trying to get data that compare people's um, heart and lung health before and after wildfires. And it's not just people that are providing this kind of, I guess, natural experiment. Yeah, there's... This is really interesting. There's a monkey breeding colony in Northern California, um, in Davis, California. And it's in an area where there have been a lot of wildfires. And the monkeys at this um, breeding facility live partially outdoors. So they've been exposed to wildfire smoke. And a team of scientists there is studying them. And they've found that adult monkeys don't seem to have long-term health effects from wildfire exposure. But monkeys that are babies in uh, summer and fall when there's a lot of wildfire smoke tend to have smaller and stiffer lungs and weaker immune systems than babies that are born in years without a lot of wildfires. And all this information, it's important that we understand it now, but it's potentially even more important for the future. 
Yeah, I mean, this problem of wildfires is intensifying. Um, climate models project that in a lot of places in the world, fires are going to get more intense or even more frequent. So it would be really good to know what's in that smoke and what it does to you over the long term. For our second story of the week, let's turn to a study of how research itself is actually carried out and how, in this case, it's reviewed. What was this study investigating about the review process? So this survey looked at which scientists are asked to do peer reviews of other scientists' papers. And they were looking at where peer reviewers are actually based and uh, how often they get asked as a result of that. What were the findings? Yeah, so they were looking at that in part because I think if you talk to um, editors at journals, they complain that it's really hard to find peer reviewers. And if you talk to scientists, many scientists who do peer review, they just say they're being asked all the time. And there's this idea that there's peer reviewer fatigue. So this study looked at a couple of different databases that track who peer reviews papers. And they found that peer reviewer fatigue is real, at least in developed countries, but that in emerging economies, scientists there respond really quickly to peer review requests. They tend to say yes, but they don't get asked as often. So there's like this whole untapped pool of people who seem to really want to contribute. So there's this disparity where certain reviewers feel fatigued. They're getting asked to do a lot of reviews. They're doing a lot of reviews. But then there's this big pool of ready and willing potential reviewers. Yeah. So in the United States and the UK and Japan, the average researcher writes two peer reviews for every article of their own that they submit to a journal. But in emerging economies, which include like Brazil and India and Poland, those scientists do about 0.6 peer reviews for every paper of their own that they submit. So there's a pretty big disparity. I'd say the one big exception in that group of emerging economies is China. So it produces just under 14% of the world's scientific articles, or it did during the period that was studied here, and they do about 9% of the reviews. So per capita, they're still below the US and the UK, but in terms of sheer number of reviews, they surpassed the UK in 2015, just because there are so many more people in China. But in general, there's this disparity between the developed reviewers and emerging economy reviewers. What's causing that? And are there ways that that gap can be bridged? It's not quite clear why there is this disparity, but there are some theories. Um, Scientists in emerging economies um, might just not be plugged into peer networks as well, or their networks might, might be a little bit more limited than scientists in the kind of top research countries. But also, I think a lot of journals are just based in rich countries. And so there is this kind of geographic and social network disconnect. Okay, but then what can actually be done to, I suppose, broaden these networks out and make them somewhat more inclusive? So some people who have looked at um, the data from this survey have suggested that one thing that journals can do is try to recruit more editors from emerging economies and more um, board members for their journals from emerging economies because these people are just going to be more plugged into the social networks of folks in those countries. And the survey itself found that um, fewer than 4% of journal editors in the publications that it 
analyzed came from emerging economies. You know, that's a pretty tiny number considering that China alone published 13% of the world's scientific articles in 2015, and that's just one emerging economy on its own, albeit a pretty large one. Lauren Morello, thank you for joining us in our London studios. For more on those two stories and other news from the world of science, head on over to nature.com forward slash news. Or you can follow Nature on Twitter, either at Nature News or at Nature Podcast, or both. And if you want our personal witterings, then track me down. I'm at S. Bundell. And find me at Climate Adam. That's all for this week. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. a secret. I wore the wrong foundation for years. Then I discovered Il Maquillage, the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews and 50 shades of flawless coverage, their Woke Up Like This foundation is a bestseller for a reason. It's tough buying foundation online, but their Power Match quiz matched me perfectly. And with Try Before You Buy, you can try your shade free for 14 days. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz.